Welcome to Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett, and I'm your host. Ken Foster is a dog book author and runs the community outreach program for the ACC, the Animal Care Centers of New York City. His latest book, City of Dogs, is a look into how dogs live throughout the five boroughs and the unique relationship between dogs and their human counterparts within different neighborhoods. He also collaborated on it with a photographer who helped capture the dogs and people along the way. Ken has written several other books on dogs, such as The Dogs Who Found Me, Dogs I Have Met, and I'm a Good Dog. All right, Ken, I wanted to find out, like, how did you first fall in love with dogs? Like, what was your first experience that you remember? Well, it was interesting because I grew up with a lot of pets, including a family dog, which I don't really count because it was the family dog and I was the youngest in the family. So there was a dog present in my life, but I had no real responsibilities. And then I was totally petless well into my adulthood and went to spend three months at an artist colony on a farm in Costa Rica and a dog almost immediately, actually truly immediately, he showed up when I was arriving with my suitcase to greet me and our eyes met and I was like, who's that dog? But he actually started coming every morning after lunch, he would come and take a nap in my room where I was working and then he would leave and go on his own little trip and then he would come back after dark and guard my door all night. Um, And so I started following him and just completely fell in love with him and with the places that he would take me and the places that he would pause and show me like sort of what I should be looking at and appreciating. I was just amazed because I thought, how have I been missing this all this time? That dogs are such amazing creatures and that they're so social and that they're able to appreciate things that we, especially I think as city dwellers, sort of block out. And so when I moved back from Costa Rica to New York, I like immediately was just like, I have to get a dog. I need a dog. I can't go on anymore without a dog. And I went online and found a dog that looked nothing like the dog that I was missing. Right. And he was at Bark, which is a shelter over in Brooklyn. And I went and met him and he was this little brindle dog. It was like 30 pounds or so. Mm-hmm. And they said he was fully grown. I decided to just go visit him a few days in a row to make sure that I was making the right decision. Yeah. And then one day I was just like, I can't, I, like, I, I have to have him. You I was worried that him. somebody else was going to go find him and yes. take him instead of me. So he moved in and he, you know, he ended up being a hundred pounds. He had a horrible separation anxiety. I had no idea what I was doing at all, which I think is one of the, I mean, like, is a quality that I love in a dog owner when they're completely over the moon and devoted to a dog, but they've never done any of this before, but they're going to figure it out. Right. Um, that was me. Yeah, that was me. And he also introduced me to this whole population of people that I never would have met otherwise. You know, as a writer and I worked in publishing and I knew writers and I knew people that worked in publishing. And I thought that was so amazing until I got a dog, you know? (laughs) And then we met people that had all other kinds of professions, lived in other parts of the city. It was so much more interesting. Like, it's not that interesting, it turns out, to just talk to people that are sort of exactly like you. So that was Brando, my first dog, and his name was Brando at the shelter. What was his story? Do you have any idea where he came from? I think he'd been found roaming, but they tracked him to an owner 
But she'd had a dog that was still young, and then she had to leave the country and didn't come back. I think dogs sometimes are prone to separation anxiety just in general, which he probably was one of those dogs. But I think also having been bonded to somebody and then losing them, there were certain types of people that he like immediately wanted to chase after on the street. <laughs> My parents, who initially were totally skeptical about me even having a dog, immediately fell in love <laughs> with him and we would go to their house in Pennsylvania and they had a white van, like a minivan that they drove around. If you ever saw a minivan in the city or even when we moved south and we were in New Orleans, a white minivan, he would think that my parents would be in it. Oh my and God. he would like, you know, freeze on the street and that wild? like look to see who came out when the door opened and it right. wasn't who he was expecting. Like, <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It was exhausting to deal with his obsessive attractions to people and to certain other dogs. But I also was kind of like, gosh, I wish I could be this completely unembarrassed by my obsessions, you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so when you got Brando, again, like me, I had no real experience having a dog, and it took a long time. Did you work with a trainer, or was it just kind of... We did work with a trainer. Her name isn't coming to me right now, but she is still around. And yeah. I was looking at a list of what are considered the top trainers in New York, and she was on there. I did take some dog training classes. Also, we were part of the East Village dog park crowd, which was, you know, great, but also yes. full of a lot of crazy people. Oh, absolutely. Which is what made it so great. Um, but lots of competing advice and lots of people looking out for each other at the same time. Right. And was Brando dog friendly? He was up to a certain point. You know, I feel like when I describe him sometimes, I realize I, I, it sounds like me, basically. He got to a certain point where he liked his friends, but he didn't want new people coming right. in. It's like, I don't need to meet anybody else. <laughs> he wanted it just to be like the original crowd. Increasingly, we would go to the East River and play ball there or take long walks. And having to take long walks with him because we couldn't go to the dog park all the time was amazing for me because I got really healthy right. and fit and we would walk all the way down to the World Trade Center which was still there at the time and then walk back up and go up to the UN and you know it's amazing it's amazing um, yeah it was amazing so you lived in New York with Brando for how long? For a couple of years. And I was in an apartment that was, I think, about like 120 square feet total because it was in the East Village. Everyone was like, you're so lucky. Yeah, exactly. And at a certain point I was like, if this is lucky, maybe I should consider <laughs> leaving the city. <laughs> yeah. But um, partially because of him and partially just because I needed a break and wasn't sure what I was doing with my life, we moved... And it's funny because I always say we, and people are always like, who was with you? Mm -hmm. I'm like, my dog. Yeah, <laughs> but we moved to, first to Florida, where I taught for two years at Florida State University, and then New Orleans. We started collecting dogs, the two of us together. When I was in New York and started finding dogs and realizing there were stray dogs in the city before this, but I just didn't even register them. But now that I have a dog, I see them and I'm like, oh God, what can I do? Yeah. Um, so I'd bring them home, but we had such a small apartment that I'm like, right. okay, I've got like two hours to figure out where this dog can go because exactly. it can't stay here. Right. Moved to Florida and for less than I paid for that 120 square foot apartment, I had a three bedroom house with a yard and we would find dogs and they would come home for a little while, mm. sometimes for a couple of days, sometimes for a couple of weeks. 
And he really started to love, especially having a female dog in the house. Eventually, I adopted Zephyr, who was a Rottweiler-Shepherd mix. It's funny, because I would bring dogs home, and he wouldn't let them get close to my bedroom. I mean, not that he would go berserk or anything, right. but he was just like, no, you don't go over there. Yeah. And the minute he had like a, a sort of meet-and-greet date with Zephyr, they ran around the yard several times, and then went straight into the house, and into my bed. Oh my god. And I was like, well, I guess you like her. You know? <laughs> oh, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. So she was the second dog that you... She was the second dog, and then I continued finding dogs, but found a pit bull that nobody would help. And that's when you really realize how crazy, particularly back then, the stigma of being a big-headed, short-haired dog is. Yes. So Sula was her name, and she was a little black-and-white pit bull. She just showed up on my door one day. I was like, you know, looking around thinking she came from a neighbor's house right. or something, but she didn't. I didn't intend to keep her, but she, I mean, I fell in love with her, first right. of all. But she also had attachment issues. I was like, yeah, I can't find a home for her, so she's coming along. And, and she, she was in Florida, so she moved with us and Zephyr and Brando. We all moved to New Orleans eventually together. Did all three of them get along okay? They did get along. Zephyr was a little bit, I think jealous at first not in a major way but she just seemed to sometimes be like really she's here again today you know like (laughs) exactly but zephyr was an amazing rottweiler and i have another rottweiler now who's similarly amazing in that she just wanted everybody to get along really oh that's beautiful so she would play with any other dog she would figure out what level of play they wanted so eventually she and sula became playmates as well and she was a great dog so like if i found a dog i would see what zephyr did with them and that was a great way of testing because i knew she wasn't gonna you know then she would teach them yeah Yeah. I actually met the dog that had fostered Zephyr, but sort of like six months or a year after I had her, and it was like the exact same personality. I'm like, well, now I know where she gets it from. (laughs) Incredible. That's beautiful. So the three of the four of you moved to New Orleans for work? Uh, For work, because I'd I'd lived there briefly a long time ago, and I had always planned on going back. And we ended up getting there right before, like literally a month before Hurricane Katrina. We evacuated together. It was really the dogs that made me evacuate, Mm -hmm. because I realized how serious they were suddenly saying the storm would be, and I didn't want to put them in a situation. Which again, it made me think like, but I would put myself in that situation. That's kind of crazy. That's understandable in a way though, because you can take care of yourself. Well, I mean, I think I can. More or less. Maybe I can't is the (laughs) thing that I have frequently realized. (laughs) So we evacuated and we were able to come back about a month later, which was really soon for considering everybody else's situation. And because we were back so early, I, you know, once again, ended up rounding up dogs and getting more deeply involved in the rescue side of Mm -hmm. things. And then around that same time, I actually, right before we evacuated, I'd finished writing the memoir, The Dogs Who Found Me, which strangely, the editor was like, I feel like there's just something missing at the end, which became a chapter about evacuating and returning to New Orleans. Wow. So your first book, The Dogs Who Found Me, how did you begin writing that? I'd written a book of short stories that had been published and well-received, but like short stories do, hadn't necessarily sold a lot. 
And the editor that I worked with lived in the East Village also and had gotten a dog. And so even though we hadn't seen each other for a while because I'd been out of the country and all that, we kept running into each other at the dog park. Right. And she kept saying, you should write about dogs. And I was like, but I don't even know anything about dogs. Like, I have one, and that's about all I know. And I really think the fact that I wrote about it as somebody who's like, I have no idea what I'm doing, and sometimes even pausing in the middle of a paragraph to say, like, this is not what you should do in this situation, <laughs> I think that's one of the things that a lot of readers identified with. Absolutely. we've all gone through the same thing when you make that transition from being a person to being a dog person to being a dog rescuer. That book, in a way, introduced me to even more dog people, but particularly pit bull people, because I wrote about Sula and some of the other pit bulls I'd worked with, and I made sure they put her on the cover. Sula. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was a pit bull, and I wanted to put that out there in front of people. Absolutely. And so a lot of the first readers of the book, before it was reviewed or had any publicity, were people that just saw a dog that looked like theirs on the cover. And I would go to book signings, which usually are not necessarily well attended. Right. And there were people that I didn't know sitting waiting for me. And I would ask them, like, why are you here? And they would say, because the dog on the cover looks like mine. It's beautiful. That was one of the things that really moved me and made me think, like, oh, wow, there's some stuff that could be done on this subject. Yes. And so with Sula, you created a foundation? Yeah, because I traveled and did events with the book doing like fundraisers and adoption events with people organizations all around the country. And I kept seeing all the really innovative things some groups were doing and wishing that somebody was doing it in New Orleans, but nobody really was. And yet there were so many pit bulls in New Orleans yeah. before and after Katrina. And I thought, like, I guess that means I have to do it. So we started doing some rescuing, some pulling of animals from shelters, but a lot of outreach also, a lot of education, a lot of low-cost vaccination clinics as a way of reaching out to the community, not only to provide that service, but also as a way of developing relationships with people. And it was interesting too, though, because we wanted it to be Pitbull-focused, but one of the first events we did for vaccines, a teenage boy came with his Labrador, right. and he'd been sighted because his lab didn't have rabies vaccine. And he was told, you could go get a vaccine from this guy, me. And the event was cool. actually in my yard because I didn't know where else to have it. <laughs> like, you know, like a lemonade stand, but right. with vaccines. But I thought, like, well, I'm not going to not help this kid because his dog is a Labrador. Yeah. That's silly. He, like, you know. <laughs> we used pit bulls a lot in our visuals, but we would help any dog that came sure. to us. After being in New Orleans for about 10 years, I started missing New York for a variety of reasons. Right. I kept thinking, like, can I move back? Can I afford to move back? Like, obviously, no. Nobody can afford to move back. <laughs> right. No. Um, but I kept, you know... Googling apartment prices and looking outside the city. And I had friends who had moved to the Hudson Valley to Newburgh, which yes. had affordable houses. So they were saying, like, if you're going to do it, just like don't even bother looking anywhere else. Just come up here. So I sort of started thinking, like, that's what I was going to do. And I also had been in touch with several of the people, really, from ACC. I ran into them at the HSUS Expo, which happened to be in New Orleans, and mentioned that I was thinking of moving back and we immediately had like a little love storm of what might happen if i right. did and so we started a program that initially was called community dogs where i was just gonna hang out with dog people <laughs> not really just hang out with them but do the outreach kind of things that we've talked about vaccination clinics resources education training in the bronx in particular 
which is one of the boroughs that doesn't have its own full-service shelter. And also learned, and this sort of inspired my new book, but learned all these great neighborhoods in the Bronx, which is a borough that I'd never, ever, ever spent time in. And when I agreed to take the job and I heard that it would be in the Bronx, I, like, I had to stop myself from saying what I was thinking, which was just like, well, wait a minute. Why the Bronx? And now, I mean, the Bronx is just an amazing place. Yeah. That's- yeah, see, I don't know much about the Bronx at all. And I do know that now, just recently, they did approve to start building a shelter there. Yeah, it's going to be a huge full-service shelter with education, training. Which I know they Public clinic, all that stuff. That's amazing. Um, up near Co-op City. So your new book, City of Dogs? Yes. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, I was thinking about my love of these neighborhoods that really became accessible to me by talking to people about their dogs. Also, around the same time, there was somebody on social media that kept posting horrible assumptions about dog owners in the city, about dogs in the city. Dogs in the city must lead miserable lives, never get any exercise, all this stuff, which I knew to be not true. Right. But I think that these two thoughts in my head, the experience I was having seeing these people who love their dogs and the communities that they live in, I thought, like, maybe we could do a book with photographs and explore the five boroughs through dogs and their owners in these particular neighborhoods that a lot of people don't know about, right. even if they live in New York. Yeah. And so that's what we did with um, Treyer Scott, a photographer who's done amazing animal books in the past. And we you know, drove around the five boroughs in my little Fiat for a couple of months and met all these different groups of people, families, single people, all different combinations in not every neighborhood, because that would be impossible, but in a good spread of neighborhoods in all the boroughs and put it together in this book called City of Dogs. Wow. And how many people did you meet, more or less? At least 4,000 dogs Uh with the work that I'm doing at ACC and also spreading out beyond the Bronx this book. And that's probably a conservative estimate, but it seems like a lot. And it's kind of great because in some of these neighborhoods, you know, people know me now, so I'm the dog guy. But yeah, so it's been an amazing experience getting to know Staten Island, which I've never been to, Queens, which I'd barely been to, all of which have amazing communities and this really broad range of the ways that dogs play a part in city life for everybody. And how did you find like dogs in Queens versus Brooklyn versus Manhattan? Was there a different... Well, it's funny because that's a good question, and yet I always hesitate because I don't like to lump dogs or people together. but. But I think in, in Manhattan, because it's so busy and dogs are walking past so much activity, so much traffic, shops, all that stuff, they're a little bit more cosmopolitan than used to being, you know, this is totally normal. Exactly. In the Bronx, it's like everybody seems to be part of an extended family, whether it's their true family or a family that they've chosen. So you meet their dog, but then you meet and hear all the stories about their relatives and their yes. relatives' dogs and all that stuff. Oh, I love it. And then in Queens, it was, I think, the most diverse. Not just going from neighborhood to neighborhood, but also we did a shoot in a dog park. And every person and dog in that group was completely different. But they all meet each other at the same time every morning, which is one of the things I love about city dog parks. Yes. Staten Island is so sort of suburban yes. and cut off that I said, you know, I feel like these dogs don't even know they live in New York City. Like, if someone told them that, they'd be like, no. Right. Brooklyn, which I feel like the dogs there were more self-possessed or maybe a little self-centered. Maybe coincidentally also, the Brooklyn dogs we met, we knew some groups of dogs there, but a lot of them were single dogs 
and so that made them definitely more feel like, well, it's all about me. Right. You know? the, world <laughs> revolved, the world revolved around them. Yeah. Do you have any, like, ones that really stand out? Any particular dogs or people that really, like, just touched your heart or were very special to you? There's so many of them, and I think it took both Trader and I by surprise how bonded we felt with all of our subjects after just a few hours together. But some of the really great ones just off the top of my head, we went to Rikers Island where they have a training program yes. called Pause for Purpose, and they bring in pit bulls from shelters around the country, really, and they spend eight weeks living with the inmates and being trained every day. And that was amazing, first of all, because I've never been in a facility like that. And also because the relationship between the men and those dogs was so intense and positive yes. in a place where there's not necessarily a lot of positivity. Right. How long did it take you to create and work on this book from start to finish? We got the contract with the publisher in September of 2017, and they wanted to put it out for October of 2018. Yeah. So we had to turn it in by February. Okay. So we had like four months. Wow, that's maybe? fast. Yeah, it's fast. That's and great, Treyer works in, she lives in Providence while I live outside the city. You know, we would find three days when we were both available at the same time and just frantically try to go on like a scavenger hunt. So tell me about your relationship with Brando, for example. How do you feel like he changed you? Was there, what was your bond like with him? He made me look at things in a different way. He made me prioritize things differently because I definitely changed some aspects of my life, including moving out of the city, Right. at least partially for him. He could be finicky about people and other dogs, but he almost always knew what he was doing. But also, like, when he loved somebody, he did not hide it at all, which is something I'm still probably learning. But I don't think I would be doing, and he's been gone a couple of years now, which is hard to believe, but I don't think I'd be doing any of this stuff at all if it weren't for him. He completely opened me up to the world, really. And I still have two dogs. I mean, I have more than two dogs in my house, but there are two in particular that were, like, his dogs. Douglas, who's a big, white-faced, blue brindle mm -hmm. sort of hound, actually. What a great name. When he came to me, his name was Buddy, which uh -huh. I was like, that's such a horrible name. Yeah. But I didn't have anything in mind. And then one day I walked into my bedroom, and he was laying on the ground eating a copy of my memoir. And for some reason, the first thing out of my mouth was Douglas. And he looked up at me, and I was like, okay, that's, that's your name. I love it. And then Bananas, who is a little blue brindle, snaggletoothed, no, she's not blue brindle, just blue. Yeah. Snaggletoothed, scrawny, run to the litter pit bull, who, when I brought her home, I first met her, she was for sale at a gas station in New Orleans, and I ended up talking to the people, and they gave me the five remaining puppies to find homes for. Bananas and Brando were inseparable when she was still a very small, mm -hmm. young puppy. When I brought her home, he was so terrified that he walked backwards ah, through it. the house to get away from her. Like moonwalked. It was like, what is this doing oh in the God, house? I love and it. then like a couple days later, they were inseparable. And they would do this thing where they would lay back to back, uh -huh. and but with their heads thrown back so they could stare in each other's eyes. Oh, gosh. Um, and they would just do that in the yard in New Orleans for hours. Oh, that's beautiful. I love yeah. it. I love yeah. it. And you mentioned the legacy in a way that 
of what he inspired in you and kind of how you changed because of him. I know with my dog, Tiny Tim, after he passed, that's when I started volunteering at the ACC. And when I was walking towards the ACC in Harlem, I was nervous about going there because I was worried about what I was gonna see. But I imagined Tiny Tim, who was no longer with me, just walking alongside me. And it got me there. Ken, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I love all of the ideas of your books. So how do we find your books online? As they say, you can buy them wherever books are sold. But you can also find my website, which is kenfosterbooks.com. Okay. And there are links there to all the books. Wonderful. Are you also on Instagram or any other social media? I am. I'm on Instagram at Ken Foster Graham. Okay. Which is one of those names that you create when you don't realize how big Instagram is eventually going to be. Yes. And then I'm on Twitter, Ken Foster Writes. As someone who lives in New York City, I really love talking to Ken because he really exemplified how great a dog's life can be in a big city. I think a lot of people think about raising dogs or having dogs in New York or other urban areas as not a great ideal place. Yes, they don't have a yard they can jump into at any time, but really what Ken shows is that these dogs and their owners have super rich, very unique lives. And as a dog owner, I really love having my dogs in New York City. It's very social. They have a very specific routine. And they get to meet so many different and interesting people all the time. So having a dog in New York or in urban centers really can be quite wonderful. And the cool thing about Ken that I really enjoyed learning about was his story about his first dog. And then the other dogs that came along and how... They inspired him to do the work that he's doing now. And I really, really applaud Ken's work and what he's doing and how he's raising awareness while also having a lot of fun writing these great books about dogs. And I love his love of pit bulls. Pit bulls are really misunderstood dogs. And the fact that he actually wrote a whole book about pit bulls and their specific beauty and their history, to me, that's really important because they get such a bad rap. and. Yes, there are some bad dog owners, but pit bulls in general and, and dogs in general are just, they're just lovely, lovely souls. And it was wonderful to hear his take on the pit bull. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is a production of As It Should Be, a content studio, and it's made with the support of our producer and editor, Jack Summer. Special thanks to our composer and neighbor, Daniel Lampert, for creating the music for the show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can subscribe to Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this show, please leave a review or rating. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so see you next week for another episode from Dog Save the People. You can also check out the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, at johnbartlettny.com. Enjoy a walk with your dog and make it a great day for both of you.